This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today, we're chatting with Tim Reithen, a dryland broadacre cropping farmer from Horsham in the Wimmera. Tim is at the cutting edge of technology and innovation in farming, and he thrives in gaining the next one percenter. In this episode, you'll hear about Tim's early connection to ag, a career working for a multinational fuel company, and finally, Tim will share how a kid from Horsham ended up as a farmer pushing the industry and machinery manufacturers to find the next innovation. Let's jump in. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's great to be here. Tim, can you just take me back to the beginning? Um, and Can you tell me a bit where your connection to agriculture really began? My family is a farming family in uh, Western Victoria, so in the Wimmera. I moved over from South Australia and he came in and he was a cropper and a sheep farmer. And in our area, I grew up on the farm with my dad and uh, my uncle worked the farm together. So the farm was out the back door and so we'd be out running around and when we got home from school, we'd go and see what's going on at the shearing shed or out the tractors. And then that led on and our farms got bigger and we left after finishing high school, went to uni, but we've come back since doing work away from the farm. So it's been a, an inbuilt, homegrown sort of thing. And I didn't do any agricultural study per se, but I uh, did the uh, classic on-the-farm job, learn as you go. As a farming family, my understanding is you had an internet connection in the uh, in the 90s, a long time probably before a lot of people knew what the internet was, probably including me. When you look back, how do you think that influenced your life now in farming? I think it's interesting. Well, it definitely helped my brother a lot. My mum actually did a four-week TAFE course or whatever TAFE was back in the day on computers, on how to use them, and then she was a network administrator in the early days and she kind of grew up with computers and networks and then when the internet came out she had to work and um, it was either use it or lose it so she brought it home and so at that point we were in that sort of late high school sort of era and my little brother he was sort of a little couple years younger than me he got right into it as well so it's something that we're a big computing family dad used to always get the latest pc every year we seem to be getting a new one to keep up to date not quite so much now, I know. My laptop's probably about 67 years old and it seems to be okay. But yeah, we sort of grew with it. And I personally didn't do any computer science because I figured if mum was a network administrator, my little brother was a wizard and my older brother did computer science, I should be okay. How did a, a farming kid growing up at the Wimmera end up studying chemical engineering at university? How does that happen? Oh, well, it's like everybody, you know, when you're at school, it's your best teachers that sort of drive your career in the end. And I had an awesome chemistry teacher. I really enjoyed doing chemistry in year eight and year nine. And it happened to be that I had a uh, dad's cousin, his son-in-law was a chemical engineer at Mobile. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'll do that. And dad was quite free. He, he let us choose to do whatever we wanted. And I've got two brothers and a sister and one brother did accounting and my little brother did telecommunications. No surprise with the internet there. And um, my sister did microbiology. So we all went and did our own thing and he just let us choose what we liked. And yeah, I loved chemistry and I went and did that. And I went down to Melbourne Uni and I studied Chemical engineering, I might as well aim for the sky. And if I got the score, I get in. And I did. So I got a double degree. So I did a finance management major in um, commerce. So I did that for five years. And then I went and worked in um, the oil business. So I got into uh, Shell. 
What lessons did you learn from university that, that still help you today, even though obviously you studied chemical engineering, but you're farming today? What lessons did you learn from uni that helping you now? I think what's really fascinating is at uni, and it's probably the same as your later years at high school, is you learn a lot of really technical concepts, different equations to solve really unique problems. And, you know, after a year, you forget that sort of stuff. But what they're teaching you is to be familiar with all these technologies, tools to solve problems. So pretty much to know they exist if you've seen them before. So it's about communicating and being able to talk to other people. So in uni, they're trying to teach you to learn, to look. So they give you all of these things to put in your tool bag that you can pull on to later. And that's the same with farming. It's like, you know, you're starting to build that tool bag. You're starting to really challenge how things are done now and question things and use the um, information you have from different streams of knowledge to try and buck the status quo a little bit and just make sure you're doing things for the right reason. I suppose you're just wanting to uh, talk a bit now about your working career at Shell. So you worked at, as a chemical engineer. So I'll see uh, the simple question, what does a chemical engineer actually do at a refinery? <laughs> They're not a chemist <laughs> no, or a pharmacist. No, a chemical engineer, we produce chemicals that somebody else has designed. So in a refinery situation, we make petrol. So uh, we make petrol, we make diesel. And so we get crude oil coming in on ships and we have to choose which types of oil. Like they're all, It's like grain, different qualities of grain. There's different qualities of oil. And we have to do demand forecasting to work out what the market wants. So we make the right amounts. And then we've got to manage our inventories with our tanks, which is a like, lot like silos at the farm. And then uh, the key job with the chemical engineer is if things aren't going right, why is that? And how can I work it out without actually opening something or looking at something. It's not like a cedar where you can kind of just stand there and stare at it for long enough and you kind of get a feel for what's going wrong. It's uh, all in pipes, in grey anonymous pipes with stickers on. And uh, if you open one, everybody dies because it'll all catch on fire and blow up. So what we have is an awful lot of data. So they have flow meters and pressure gauges and temperature gauges and all sorts of things to help us, lab results to help us work out what's going on without actually being able to see anything. So Probably my time at Shell was really important to sort of get my understanding of how to use data really efficiently. So it become a pretty natural thing is to use a lot of cool spreadsheets. I love love Excel. It's a wonderful program. And you learn a lot of little tricks with that. And um, yeah, that helps you sort of follow trends and manipulate data and try and understand the problem better and try and nut it out from a root cause. So a chemical engineer, like every other engineer, really just solves problems. So they're going down to the nugget of a problem trying to nip it in the bud and then let it dissolve itself versus uh, trying to put Band-Aids onto solutions to get through there. So the cool part about farming is it's just full of problems. And so you're always looking for these new challenges and then you're trying to work out how can I not just Band-Aid over it or, you know, oh, I'll fix it next year, it'll be all fine, it won't happen again. Try and somehow correct it early on and move your business forward and sort of take another step up the ladder in improvements. And no accidents at the refinery? There's very few accidents at the refinery for a very good reason. Like We have to report paper cuts. I'm pretty sure uh, more people had rose thorn injuries on the weekend doing the gardening than, uh, than we'd have at the refinery. But uh, there's no, no, no serious accidents when I was there. But uh, it was great fun, you know, climbing up and down columns and uh, liaising too. Like it's about talking to people that are in different types of careers. Uh, you know, you had the fitters and turners, the guys that turn the spanners. You have electricians, you've got well, obviously the welders, you've got lab technicians, you've got the management, you've got the overseas management. And so it's the ability to be able to talk to different groups of people and talk to them at a common level. So you want to be able to have enough of an understanding to about welding so that when the welder guy starts telling you something, you actually understand what he's trying to say. It's an awful lot of um, working through relationships with people and building them as well. It's always easiest to go down and we, there's a control panel and the guy sitting in front of a computer running 
running a refinery and you, you'd often go down there and talk to them for half an hour about jet skis or something, you know, something completely random. And then when you got to the end of it, you'd be like, oh, can you just bump up that set point another such and such? We want to do this and this and this. And you'd form that rapport and they'd be, you know, they'd be like, yeah, I, I can do that. We can go in. But if you just barge in and say, I need you to move that up and then leave, 10 minutes later, we're back where it was. So it's good to get those relationships, get people on the journey and stuff as well. So I learned a lot about that with um, communicating with people and trying to get my way and also using the data to help explain things. No, that's great. And I think you probably nearly alluded my next question, which will get you going a bit more. But what did you learn from working at Shell that really helps you now as a farmer? Communication is really important and looking with all the data is important. But I also think it's a professionalism. Like you were alluding to the incidents at the refinery and the level of standard is super high environmentally and safety wise. And so you look at what farmers do and it's a pretty much it's a she'll be right sort of attitude and, and that's slowly leaving you know as the, a lot more younger farmers are coming in and they're being taught the right way to do things you know we've got to really step up our safety and I think that's one of the things that really starts showing up in your business and also to the quality you know like quality control in a refinery you can't be off grade with your fuel because all of a sudden somebody's very very upset that their expensive car doesn't work that sort of thing's also rubbing off as well so trying to make sure for us our grain storage making sure our grain storage is in tip-top condition and working as best as it can be so the customer gets what they really want not just us trying to force a product on them. What led you to leave the role in the corporate world and return to the family farm? Dad and my uncle had a, had a fantastic business going on the farm and obviously uh, we used to come home every, every Christmas and help with the harvest. But, um, I mean, Shell's a company of 100,000 employees, or it was when I was there, and when you, um, you realise that the board's about 10 people. So chances of you being one of those 10 is pretty low, so you've got to have the right sort of attitude for that. And so you start realizing that you can start making good decisions and then you don't necessarily have enough influence to actually execute them. And so coming farming is great. If you're in your own farming business, you're the one who's making the decisions. You're out doing the analysis. You get to see the fruits of your labor when you actually start making those calls. So it was just a chance for me to grow personally and do something I really enjoy doing. And when I came back, and that was uh, 11 years ago now, it's farming's just in this little golden era where we've got all these new technologies coming out and a lot of young blood coming into the into the system too. So it's it's been an exciting time to be in ag. And from a family perspective, shifting from the city back to home? Yeah, it was good. <laughs> I uh, used to live in uh, Melbourne in an apartment, which was lovely. I much preferred that. I used to be in Docklands and I used to commute down to Geelong. Um, and then uh, I met my future wife and she was from Melbourne and she really enjoyed Geelong. And I'm like, why do you like Geelong? I tried it there and I went back to Docklands living in an apartment, which was good. But yeah, in the end, I managed to seduce her to come out to the farm and she realized, or the farm to the town, Horsham. And uh, she realized that pretty much everything, all the main things that she needed were here. So what, what was the difference between Geelong and that? So I managed to drag her back and our family uh, grew up here in Horsham, which was lovely. You really are an innovative farmer. And can you tell me about some of the innovations that you've made on your farm? And I suppose to use a few examples that I know I'm aware of, you've certainly been involved around natural capital accounting and also a fair bit of machinery innovation. Can you talk me through a few of the thing, innovative things you've done on the farm and, and I suppose the why and, and what you've learned and what you've achieved out of it? The first step is to have a plan of where you want to be and what you're trying to achieve. And so, like I said, with the engineers, we're always trying to solve these problems. And so you know where you want to go to. It's just a matter of the technology keeping up with where you are. And so when there's new technologies that come out to help fulfill that role, and I think that 
each plant that we grow, we want to be growing as best it can to its maximum of its potential. And we want to be applying crop protection, protectants. We want to be applying our fertilizers. We wanted to be doing that to just the right amount to do the job and no more and no less. And um, those sort of tools, so the variable rate sort of stuff, sort of a big thing. And also we're dry land farmers. There's no irrigation here. It's only what falls from the sky. So we grow crops in, in uh, winter only and we're always moisture limited. So things about moisture and things about trying to make each plant more efficient. So that's kind of where we want to be. And so we look for these tools to do it. So one of the things we've done at our farm is um, back till dad started it. He uh, was into minimum tillage very early on, sort of in those late 80s. He was in there, one of the earlier people. And um, we moved in the year 2000 to a, a disc seeding system just to reduce disturbance. But at that point, when we moved to this disc seeding system to reduce soil throw, we also went to controlled traffic farming. And the reason we did that was because we could see the benefit in compaction or uncompacted soils versus compacted soils. So before we were CTF, we were like 43% of the paddock was getting driven over by some sort of wheel track somewhere during the season. And now we're down to about 12%. But in crop, it's only about 2.5%. So uh, the wheel tracks that actually crush the crop are, are quite low. So it's made a big change, and that's like free dirt. You don't tend to get a lot of compensation around wheel tracks, so uh, what you crush is gone. So, um, yeah, it really takes a yield hit when you run a, a massive set of tyres across everything. So we did that, and that helps get that soil structure restored between the wheel tracks, and that allows that water to filter through the soil quicker and get away from the surface. So we, um, when it rains, if it rains heavy, we can sort of get that soil into the profile. And if it doesn't rain heavy, it at least moves further away from the surface so it has a better chance of not evaporating straight back away. So we're kind of getting better water use of the rainfall we do get. So just trying to be a bit more resilient that way. And I find that's a big part of our business. We, we've changed discs to a, a more efficient one, allows dry sowing. We, uh, we probably do nearly two-thirds of our seeding before it even rains and that's with a dry profile so we don't expect anything to come up until that first rain and our disc seed is uh, a bit of a novel hybrid like I said communicating with people it's all about working with companies to get the solutions you want and we had a uh, single disc early on and we found that it actually was stalling it wasn't turning in our soft soils as we were getting better at no-till and uh, control traffic it was ground was getting fluffy and the discs were stopping moving we tried a corn planter at the same time and, and it was really efficient, but just overly complicated. And so we ended up getting a custom 80-foot machine built by Dale Foster at NDF Narai and um, we ended up putting on essentially corn planter row units and then converted it to an air seeder. So it was this big mishmash Frankenstein we've got in our shed that tries to execute this thing, but it also is awesome on, on our data. So it's got like a, a lot of technology on it that helped give us more and more information about what our soils are doing. So it does a downforce measurement on each row unit and that allows us to get a really good soil texture across the field, which is like high resolution, really good. And it also has some sensors on it that can measure organic carbon. It can measure organic matter, cation exchange capacity, water and uh, temperature, the main ones, and as well as how good the furrow is. So these little things, all these layers we can add in to try and better understand what's going on with our crop. Then we use these digital platforms like we use Operation Center, the John Deere one, plug a lot of our data layers into that to get a better understanding of what's going on. And, and that's just on that cedar side. And then I can go on and on and on, but we've got a boom spray. We've got the green on green camera spraying. We've been playing around that and trying to develop more and more algorithms that work better in our system. So um, green on green is a technology where the cameras detect the weeds on the fly and, and activate the jets individually to hit those targets. Ours is running a um, turn compensation on it, which is kind of a novel thing. I like to test these new products. That's sort of the latest version of the 
green on green is to turn and compensate. What does turn compensation mean? It means that we can go around a tree while having the weed it essentially uh, activated. So normally um, with those weed control machines, they, they can't work out what's going on when you're turning because obviously the camera on the wing is moving really, really fast and the one on the inside is moving really, really slowly, whereas they assume you're moving at the same speed. That's a clever bit of logic they've had to apply to get that to work. So we're running an experiment on that, which seems successful, which is great. That means we can use it in more areas, not just on the open Wimmera planes with paddocks without power poles. We can do it uh, on the paddocks with trees in it as well, which is good. Each region has its own weed problems. And so building algorithms to suit the weed issues you have and then coming up with ways of applying these things. I mean, last year we were we were spraying fungicides on beans. Was, last year was a terrible year for disease in beans, uh, faber beans. And um, we were using the weed it or the, the bilberry um, green on green detector to actually uh, spray out the beans that were still alive with fungicide, but not the ones that weren't. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to save fungicide by using the uh, camera technology. And just uh, spraying in crop to kill weeds that are, are very similar. So we, we spray vetch in lentils. We've been playing around with that. We've got a wild oats in wheat algorithm, kill wild oats in wheat. We haven't managed to use that yet, but it's sort of ready to go. And summer spraying, it does summer spraying as well. So, But the burn spray has just got technology layers on it too that just allow us to do a more efficient job. It's got a lot of little things that can just help us reduce drift, allow us to be more efficient with the chemistry we're applying. So we do can do variable rate spraying. That's sort of the boomy sort of bit. And then we've got um, our hay program. When we went to control traffic farming, we, we ditched the sheep because in the 1990s, the sheep were worth even less than they are now, which is pretty bad. So they weren't very profitable and you'd see a whole shed of hay bales and you realise it was like one week's crops worth and it was a lot of, a lot of effort. So it was a, we didn't mind the sheep. It's just that it was a lot of labour for the return you were getting. And so um, we ditched the sheep and uh, a hay processor opened up in Horsham. And we were actually using um, export hay as our sheep, essentially. So we'd mechanically control ryegrass, which is our main weed issue in our region, with hay production. And so the problem with hay production is it's mainly European and it's all very small scale. And we're on um, controlled traffic, which means we have these 12-metre swaths that are hard mapped into our fields. They're all fixed with a guidance system. And uh, we run three-metre centres on our equipment. So our hay program had to try and fit our controlled traffic system. And we've kind of got it now where it does. We've got a gang of three mowers. So we actually can run three mowers on our tractor and cut 12 metres at a time. So we can do our swath width into three windrows. And then we can rake on controlled traffic and uh, we can bale on controlled traffic. We even got our baler modified to be wide enough to hit three metres. And that was an exciting journey. The axles on the uh, baler, happened to be a BPW axles and at a field days we noticed they had a stand at BPW and they were really helpful oh they're pretty helpful and when we saw these axles we went, oh remember those people at the field days they were really good they seemed to know their stuff and we asked them and said oh yeah, yeah yeah we've got blueprints for that well we can look that up and they ran it through their engineering department and uh, pretty much said this is what you need and they sent out a crate full of parts and an axle and said you just bolt this on and we just got this Meccano kit, stuck it on the baler and all of a sudden it was now a three metre legit baler without the uh, backyard welding and uh, subsequent risk of it snapping in half. So yeah, really, really interesting. That's just those little things where you pick up these relationships during the year and uh, might put them in the memory banks for another time. So once we've bailed them, we have a stacker which we can pick up the bales on control traffic as well. So uh, as a pusher on the front and then it stacks them up at the end of the paddock. So we can sort of keep the wheel tracks down in hay and reduce that compaction. So these little things has taken years to get right, just modifying equipment, getting a different piece of equipment to suit the job, playing around with it until we get it about right. So we're, we're just about there. 
And why do you think being innovative in farming operations is really important? I think it's where things are going in the future. We just need to be way more efficient with our inputs. So um, input costs are going up. Our price of our grain are solid at the moment, but that's not typically where they are. And so the margin's going to come out of it pretty quick. And so we need to be really efficient about it. We also need to stand on our sustainability credentials. You know, we don't want to be told what we have to do. So I think we need to run the run the lead flag on that and get out in front and show all these tools that we're using, which are actually achieving the sustainability goals that people expect. It's nice to be on the front foot in that and also directing the discussion. So getting in and playing with these things, like you mentioned, the natural capital accounting, you know, getting an understanding of how that is at ground level when they start, rather than having to be forced into it later on when it doesn't really seem to fit your business at all. So it's worth contributing to these sort of things and trying to help with the dialogue, work with them. But what have you learned from that? What's the real learning yourself from being innovative as opposed to someone that may be a follower? It's fun, which is why I do it. It's fun. But I think what I've learned is that a lot of companies with innovations, it's a brain bug they had when they were at university or something and they're developing it, but still they're not farmers. And so the actual execution is not necessarily how they thought it was going to be. And it's about how you can use the tools to suit you. And so what I'm getting at is that essentially these young innovative enterprises are looking for feedback from farmers on how they're going to do it. And so working with them, they're really positive when you start providing good constructive feedback on how things could be used, maybe new opportunities, how that's not really how I'd use it, maybe somebody who would, but just get that dialogue going with them early to help essentially make their business succeed as well. So it's fun working with these people and actually getting their businesses going and getting them tailored to suit me, to be honest. And I feel with my brother's background, he was a telecommunications engineer. He did project work at Telstra and um, me as a chemical engineer and with all the data sort of analytics, I'm figuring this sort of technological leaning with, you know, data layers and cloud and connectivity is something that we should be able to do. And if we can't do it, then there's a lot of farmers that are going to really struggle. We're really keen to sort of get these things going and sort of happy to be a bit of a test bed because we enjoy it to um, sort of iron out some of these bugs and make them a bit more robust and easy for other people to use too. I suppose being interviewed means you also make mistakes. Um, and I suppose, can you give me some examples of, of what you've learned from failure? Well, just wasting a lot of money, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, I think the key thing is we run a successful business and we're like, okay, if we like maybe have a crack at something that doesn't quite work out. I mean, we had a shielded sprayer for a bit there and um, it was a very nerve wracking job. You're putting out a lethal chemical in your crop and you're hoping that the GPS works. And it probably didn't get used quite as much as it could have. It worked really well when we were using it. In the end, we had to ditch it because we increased the width of our cedar and the shielded sprayer didn't fit the width of the cedar anymore. And so uh, I'm still tempted to go back that way. But yeah, for a while there, it was sitting in our shed and you're like, oh, there's 160 grand. It's sort of not really getting that much value out of it. And that's the other thing, you know, people all say, oh, so what's your return on investment on that? And you're like, well, I think the first question is, what is your plan? What are you trying to achieve? And then often you'll get a simple solution, like Precision Ag is a very good example. One of the simple solutions that will sort of pay for that. And then the rest of it, you look for opportunities to really get the cream out of it, you know. And so with Precision Ag, for instance, you know, you go and do soil testing and it allows you to do variable rate lime. You know, get a really good pH map across your field. You do variable rate lime. You can actually do real VR like a serious innovator with your spreader and um, you end up saving literally truckloads. You're like, how many truckloads at this paddock? Oh, only four. We don't need 10. 
which is what we would have done if we did a blanket rate. And you start seeing those that real value and you see it immediately. Like, you know, you've done the soil testing, the next month you're spreading, you got the money in the bank saved. And you see that and you go, okay, I can see that benefit. But then you go, well, what else can I use this data layer I took the soil test for? What else can I use that for? And you go, oh, well, maybe I'll compare it to my yields and all this sort of stuff. And that's the bit where you're not really sure how much it's saving you because if it's a really dry year, it might mean nothing. If it's a really wet year, it might be fantastic. But it's really hard to quantify. So it's always good to have at least one good revenue source that can sort of really justify it. And then it's up to you to really try and turn the screws and get extra uses out of it. So like we talked about with the camera spray, you know, it's a green on brown sprayer. It's a green on green sprayer, but we were using it for variable rate fungicides, which is not what they kind of intended, but it works. So uh, these are the things where we can sort of try and get extra value out of our products and make them more useful. So I figure if I can kind of get it close to paying itself off, then I'm definitely going to be able to pay it off. All right, Tim. So uh, it's near time for the quick fire round. There's two rules. You have to keep your answers to a, a maximum of one sentence and you have to answer with the first thing that comes into your mind. <laughs> really long sentences? You can put just extended commas in there if you really want to, but uh, no, we'll try and keep them to a sentence if we can. So if you're, you're ready to go. Go for it. All right, let's go. If you weren't in the job you're in now, what would you be doing? I'd say I would be probably working in a refinery overseas somewhere, making a lot of money. What's one piece of advice you would have for anyone wanting to enter the industry? I think find some really good mentors, latch onto some good farmers that are doing a good job and try and get friends with them and emulate what they're doing and then build on what you learn as you go on. If you could change to another part of ag, what area would you be in? I'd have to probably say something like the chemical side, so maybe in product development. And uh, what's the best lesson you've learned from a mistake, a stuff up or a failure? Probably the best lesson is don't do it again or don't put your fingers there. Have you got all fingers? They're all 10 fingers? They're all here at the moment, yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. And finally, when you're out in the farm, what brand of wear boots do you wear? I wear, I think it's mongrels at the moment, zip up sides, but I don't zip them up. I like the uh, the flexibility once they're worn in, I like them flopping around a little bit so I can kick them off and put my slippers on in the sprayer. All right. Thanks, Tim, so much for joining us and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Greg. It's been great chatting. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website, ruralbank.com.au. This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.